Howdy. Welcome to Undersampled Radio, the show where we talk science, tech, oil, business, politics, and more. Hi, I'm Matt. And I'm Graham. Together, we're the hosts of this circus. To follow the conversation, make suggestions, or rant and rave, please visit the forum Software Underground at swung.rocks. Remember that... Remember when you had to dial up and it was said, you know what I'm talking about? It was so much. Yeah, fun. I did. I didn't. I don't remember the first time I got internet at home though. I feel like I never. I don't remember actually living with that. I remember experiencing it at like my my wife's parents' place. But what I think you? by the time we got internet at home, we had proper internet because it would have been Norway. We had. Mm-hmm. ADSL. We were part of a, I seem to recall, we were part of a, um, the company that I worked for, Statoil, had this sort of program of like high-speed internet at home. Well, not high-speed, but DSL at home. High-speed back in that day. Yeah, so we skipped the whole modem thing. Lucky you, man. What were you doing back in the, uh, in the modem days? Italian? I thought I was going to say stallion. Um, what do you mean? In the modem days, what was I doing? Yeah, you were working at, um, you were picking, you were uh, interpreting grass sections? Uh, n- no, I would have been at grad school, basically. Hmm. You know, So we had whatever kind of internet we had at, well, at the department. And I was uh, I was busy building websites. I should look to see if my the website I built is on like the Wayback Machine or something. Would, I guess it would it be, maybe. Could be. So, I see that you're logged into our show notes here. Wait, oh, we didn't do the intro. I forgot. Do you want to do the intro? Go ahead. Hey everyone, <laughs> welcome to show number I don't know what. It's got to be sixty. 66. 666, just us this week. No guests, just Graham Gansel, Matt Hall, sitting at home. And a webcam. And a webcam. (laughs) (laughs) Stay tuned for um, a whole heap of notes from Graham and really nothing from me. But I feel really nothing. Literally nothing or metaphorically? Well, there's literally nothing in the show notes. There's literally not a, character, a single character. There's figuratively not nothing because I'm busy as ever. Are you? Are you? So you're just gonna wing it on the show notes? That makes me nervous. Yeah, I, I, maybe I'll type stuff in as as, as it comes to me. <laughs> it makes me nervous. This live, live show noting. Okay, so uh, Matt, what's first on our list of show notes today? Well, let's cut straight to Graham, who's out in the field. I think Graham's uh, out there in um, in Austin, Texas, um, now working on GCNs and GAEs. What hey, are these things? I'll tell you in a second. But before we get to that, there's something on the show notes that uh, there's something not on the show notes that I wanted to mention, which okay. is um, Austin is pretty happening in terms of uh, technology machine learning, and deep learning. So um, That's what I've heard. I've lived in a, in a slow part of the world now for over a decade, and it's nice to tr- transition into a part of the world that has um, one, high-speed Amazon delivery, and B... <laughs> what, what does that mean? What does high-speed mean? <laughs> free same-day, sh- uh, one-day shipping. So like 24 hours. You did, that's not available in NOLA? Uh-uh. All right. What, what do you I'm have really to? Getting off on a what kind of city do you have to be to get on that list? Austin. So, <laughs> sorry. Getting back to Austin Deep Learning, I went to the Austin Deep Learning Meetup last night, and yeah. it was wonderful. I bet it so was. So, if you're in Austin and you're looking for something to do uh, with respect to meeting people in physical space and talk about deep learning stuff you should check out Austin Deep Learning Meetup. The talk last night was, oh, he's typing, and I'm trying to read it while I talk. The talk last night was about recurrent neural networks and their application to NLP, and it was pretty cool. So apparently the group is, uh, this was my first one, apparently the group is composed of some intro 
to machine learning people. And also, I met a couple of PhD computer science deep learning specialists. Um, so it's pretty diverse. So it was cool. Yeah, that sounds fun. I mean, you know, I, I, I mean, I've come to terms with it and everything, but <laughs> you know, I'm an hour away from the nearest conurbation of any size. There is actually a data science meetup, not a deep learning meetup, but a data science meetup in Halifax. Um, on something like the last Wednesday or the first Wednesday of the month, something like, like that. And it's um, it's been uh, a bit hit and miss, but worth going to if you happen to be in Halifax. Um, yeah, it's, so that's on meetup.com. Is that where people would find that? Yes, indeed. Uh, yeah, meetup.com is pretty cool. Yeah, you know, when it when I first started using it, I thought it was a little hokey, but it, it, mm. it actually really is a pretty good resource, um, especially if you tailor your meetups to things which have uh, large, not just, um, I forget what they call it on meetup.com, but the, um, participation, you can like sign up to be part of a group. Okay. And in, in my, and this is limited experience, in my experience on meetup, if it doesn't matter about the size of the membership of the group, it's more, it really makes a lot of sense to go into the individual past meetups they've had and see what the attendance is like. Right. So you can find robust ones for attendance. It's it's pretty awesome. Yeah, I, I, I've you know been to a couple in Houston that we found just when we were there on on trips. You know, it's not often that they line up, mm -hmm. but um, I usually have a have a quick look ahead when I'm going somewhere new just to sort of see if there's something going on. And yeah, yeah you know, met, we met some actually. One guy who's in Software Underground, and uh, I still email with him occasionally. We met him there. Cool. So there you yeah, you're definitely, um, I can tell you from experience shipping you a Christmas present or two, you're definitely in the land of Amazon takes two weeks to get to you. Yeah, yeah, it is usually getting on for a couple of weeks. It, it can be, I think we've had a couple this year where it's really like been very fast indeed, like two days. But, um, yeah, a lot of vendors, it's either two weeks or it's incredibly expensive <laughs> to ship. Yeah. You know, so yeah, it's like you choose. And Canada gets a kind of a rough deal with a lot of American online vendors. It's just like treated sort of like the rest of the world, you know? So it'll be sort of next day shipping, free shipping for US addresses. And then Canada's like $140. <laughs> free four week shipping. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, we kind of get a bit forgotten about. Anyway, anyway, over the next four to nine weeks, keep an eye out for uh, some gifts from Austin. Oh, sweet! Yeah, I will. Thanks. That's exciting. Um, what's this conversation? So he literally is writing show notes as we're talking. <laughs> Here's one from Chris Jackson. What is this? Yeah, were you? Were you? Uh, did you? Did this pass you by? Yeah, it, it did. Yeah. Okay, well, so there was a really fun uh, sort of thread in Twitter that it started with Chris Jackson um, at size underscore matters in Twitter, um, tweeting a picture that he said he got from a random email exchange with Professor Johnson. I don't know who that is, but I guess it's uh, one of his colleagues at Imperial College uh, London. And um, it's a really cool satellite photo of the um, the Horton River on the Bathurst Peninsula in um, in the Arctic on the border on the sort of coast of the Beaufort Sea in uh, northern Canada and uh, it's really cool because the, this river goes kind of along this peninsula and then at one point it clearly used to flow into the kind of lee side as it were of the the ragged side of the peninsula and then at some point it's broken through the other side into the sea and sort of short-circuited um but it's a pretty neat little bit of uh earth porn as people say and there was a long it's like the, the i see now the tweets got like 261 likes um so it had some legs for sure, but it immediately triggered this whole kind of bit of investigative geojournalism from various people trying to unearth papers. And uh, Chris asked a question about the elevation of the river and people were sort of digging into digital elevation models and stuff like that. It was, it was kind of fun. And there's some really nice other pictures in there too. Cool. 
Yeah, yeah this is really interesting to see the breach on the side of the peninsula. Yeah, and it's formed a really beautiful little uh, little delta there. That's um, how old is the delta? Uh, so they figure that it. I'm going to get this date wrong, but I think it broke through. They've done some dating on wood and so on that was trapped in the um, trapped in the delta, and I think they figured it was from 1640. Happened after 1640, um, but are definitely fully formed by 1826, so somewhere in there. And that part of the world's actually just really interesting for all sorts of reasons. There's crazy mud diapirs going on in the Beaufort Sea, and um, one of the Upper Cretaceous source rocks in the area, uh, the Smoking Hills Formation, <laughs> appropriately enough, outcrops on that peninsula and is permanently on fire. Um, it's wow. such a good source rock that it's just burning at the surface, having been lit presumably by lightning or whatever. And um, yeah, so those cliffs are actually just sort of bleeding smoke, um, I think permanently is what I read. Has, I'm kind of scrolling through the conversation now. Did anyone mention a um, latitude and longitude or anything where you can go explore oh. this in 3D on Google? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. I like lots of people certainly found it. Um, I posted a link to a DEM explorer. Um, there's an Earth Observatory page that gives the lat long. Um, if you go up to the Mackenzie Delta, it's about 100 kilometers east of the Mackenzie Delta. Um, it's not too tricky to find. Yeah. Um, just south of Banks Island. You know, I, I had uh, I got together with um, Zoltan and his wife uh, a couple of days ago, and we were chatting about um, progression of sinuous channels and rivers through time. Mm -hmm. And he wants to start picking away at some sort of evolutionary machine learning process for mm -hmm. um, you know, sort of like regressing river or i guess predicting uh river evolution or, or channel evolution and at first that seems like a very difficult problem um, but he says that he has some amazing data um like many many times per year satellite imagery and associated masking data so like Here's a twelve by you know here's a whatever thousand by thousand pixel image of the this sinuous channel, but then there's a corresponding thousand by thousand pixel image of like you know a mask. So like only where the river exists, ones everywhere else zero. Okay. So I think it's possible to do something like that, um, just using yeah. a simple recurrent neural network. Um, sort of just do yeah. like a time series forecast moving forward through time. So you have like the one, two dimensions of the satellite image, and then you have the third dimension of time. Yeah. Well, the, the sequence then would be the upriver um, patterns, or the sequence would be the time sequence, I guess. The sequence is in time. Well, I guess, the, I mean, the sequence is three-dimensional, but the, the sort of like forward predictive dimension is time. And then the, um, <clears throat> I don't know what you call that geologically, but the bit, the changing in the river parameters, the actual flexing or sinuosity or whatever is expressed through those masks. Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be really interesting to see if Earth systems are predictable with that few parameters, right? Yep. In other, I mean, he, he, when he was on the show a few weeks ago, and it's worth checking out that show if you missed it. Um, it's definitely worth listening to that conversation because he was talking quite a bit about modeling sinuous channels with very simple geometric parameters, right? Which suggests that, yeah, maybe you can do it with purely with geometry, because um, I, which I think would surprise a lot of uh, fluid dynamicists. Yeah, and yep. you know, and geologists and geomorphologists who like to look at gradients and the composition of the floodplain and the upstream sediment load and all this kind of thing. 
Um, mind you, Zoltan tweeted a picture a few weeks ago, which I'll give you the link in the show notes right now. And I mean, you look at that kind of total um, uh, craziness and um, you wonder <laughs> just how predictable something like that can even ever be, right? These systems are incredibly complex. Well, fluid dynamics is one of the great unsolved physical phenomenon. There's been a lot of um, actually related to that picture that uh, Zoltan posted, there's, which is a lidar image. Um, there's been a lot of lidar fixiness on lately. Don't know if you noticed that. I haven't noticed that. Um, I think so. I, I've done a little bit of work on chaos theory years ago, mm -hmm. and. Um, I don't understand how, just physically speaking, <laughs> I don't really understand how any fluid dynamics work actually comes out correct. Yeah. It, it is mind-blowingly unstable. And any of these systems, you know, like um, projecting with Navier-Stokes equations, it's like, un I can't believe that works. Yeah, yeah. Did you see these uh, Im images recently? Um, there was some incredible looking simulation of turbulence around some, I think, Boeing landing gear mm -hmm. that had apparently taken months and months to run. Uh, it was very compelling to watch. I assume none of the actual eddies are real, right? But it gets the character the pressures, like the average pressures on the belly of the aircraft or around the landing gear and stuff, are presumably well fit to real data um, from pressure sensors and so on. But obviously, the actual bits of turbulence aren't predicted. And I, I just wonder, in a natural system where you've got a, 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 something like a turbidity current, say, those, it's those sort of outliers that can cause an avulsion or cause the whole channel to just sort of switch in ways that don't really happen with a big like a thing like an airplane right the airplane is still just the airplane it just has to cope with what's happening to the air but the thing with the geological system is it responds to those um aberrations if you like or those extremes in fact it's the extremes that cause the sort of non-linear and unpredictable behavior, like it. Do you know well, what I mean? Those aberrations exist in other physical systems as well. I mean, in in the case of the airplane, um, aberrations in the physical system could include things like uh, a bird runs into your fuselage yeah, and there's sure. a slight dent, or uh, there's a, a piece of hail in the air that passes through that makes a huge difference in the turbidity currents surrounding the the solid object. Yeah, right. I just feel like, on the whole, it seems like you need to just know the average behavior, well, not average, but um, the sort of maximal behavior so that you can design to it, whereas the natural system reacts to it. It's almost like if the airplane was sort of like changing shape because of the turbulence around it. So, I mean, well, I guess it does, right, on some level. Yeah. It's just that that becomes a design parameter. Um, it's a thing that's happening around you, whereas in a geological system, it's the thing <laughs> that you're trying to predict. It, I think we're maybe just talking about different types of wash. Yeah, right. Maybe, maybe at a given spatial scale and time scale, if it's big enough, you can predict its behavior. You might just not get every meander right. Now we're fully into the realm of conjecture because none yeah. of us, neither Let's of us is a fluid dynamics expert. Um, anyway, yeah. I can't find that video, so it's kind of moot. It's, <laughs> um, what what was next? Uh, GCNs and GAEs. Before yeah. we do, well, okay, we'll do it. Oh, real before quick. We, before again, you're just gonna. We'll do it. We'll do it real quick, okay? So graph convolutional network. I, th I think I've already mentioned this on the show, but I'm going to do it again as I've been playing a lot with these things. Mm -hmm. um, 
information spaces don't exist on nice, they don't even exist in physical geometry. So that is to say that many systems, especially sort of like relational systems, information systems, uh, cannot be, do, do not exist on Riemann manifolds. That's a problem for machine learning, although we'll get there. That's a problem for machine learning implementations, current implementations of, say, neural networks, because the some, some of the most successful architectures in the machine learning space depend on a Euclidean relationship between spatial dimensions. So higher stepping back to a higher level, if you analyze an image with anything, uh, like a, a standard filtering algorithm or, or a, a convolutional neural network, the, the kernels which operate on the data assume that pixel at location 1, 1 is next to pixel at location 2, 1, and also pixel at location 1, 2. So images in traditional convolutional neural networks exist in the Cartesian space, Euclidean geometry. You move left, right, and up, down. And it's smooth, which is important. So there are no strange loopbacks inside of image dimensions. There's no twisting of images. There are no discontinuities in images, uh, sections where the dimensions stop. Um, so convolutional neural, neural networks work really, really well. Not the case on information networks uh, or so-called graphs. Uh, in that case, in the case of, of, of graph theory, your space, your sort of geometry of, of your information space can have these weird uh, uh, discontinuities where the space abruptly ends and starts again. Uh, and it can have recurrent dimensionality where sort of things connect to themselves in strange ways. Um, not to mention that... So, hang on, and just so I make sure I'm... So, in a sort of Euclidean space, in a, in a bunch of pixels, it's just a regular grid. Yes, sir. So everything has... Um, you know, it's very easy to tell what everybody's neighbors are. And everybody has the same kind of neighbors. It's like a, it's like a, it's like a plan of Manhattan. Or, well, not only Manhattan, but Portland, Oregon, mm -hmm. happens to have square grids. Mm -hmm. Whereas in a graph, like a network style of graph, um, that um, the concept of neighborhood is a bit more flexible. Is that, yeah. that what you're saying? Things can be connected to other things which are far away, some things which are very close. They can be connected to themselves. They can have many neighbors. They can have few neighbors. They can have no neighbors. Yeah. So it's a different kind of space. So my question is, why would you try to use convolution on something that doesn't look at all like an image type of a, type of a thing? How could that possibly work? My question back to you is, why would you attempt to use convolution at all? I mean, this is this is a educational exercise. So, why, I mean, why did people uh, invent? Why did why did uh, the Fourier's of the world invent convolution in the first place? And then, additionally, like, why did humans start using convolutional neural networks as opposed to just yeah? So, I mean, networks? I feel like it's just sort of neighborhood statistics, right? It's a, it's a way to tell something general, but not too general, about a place in something, whether it's a position on a one-dimensional line or a position in a 2D thing or a 3D thing. It's neighborhood statistics. Mm -hmm. It's a way to build up rep abstract representations of information contained in that space. Yeah, cool. So the answer to your question is the same thing. If you are forced to look at individual nodes 
in a graph mm -hmm. or individual dis disparate pieces of information inside of an information space, you can never learn. I actually don't know that if this is true, but uh, I'll make the claim that you can never learn as much not using those spatial relationships as you can using them, which is why you want convolution. Okay. Be interesting to see that as a proof. So I'm because sure there's, you're saying essentially that there's always extra information to be gained from looking at the neighborhood of something. Yes. Right. Always. Yeah. That makes sense. I mean, that's, I mean, that's the basis for statistics, like these sort of um, recursive type statistics, like page rank and uh, eigen centrality that you get in graph theory, right? Yes. Where it's like I can tell more about this vertex because I know something about its the things it's connected to. That's right. Cool. cool. Okay. Well, that seems valid. I. Okay. I uh, approve of this line of reasoning. <laughs> okay. So there are a couple of tricks you can play if you want to consider links and vertices that are adjacent to, in some form, the, the piece of information that you, you are currently poised on. Considering, yeah. So one of those ways, the light duty way, is to do some sort of uh, no uh, vertex embedding. Um, so you essentially collapse information onto a lower dimensional space, and then you perform your analysis with conventional tools. Um, so we you just mentioned eigenvalue decomposition. Okay. Okay. Did I lose you? Yeah. Uh, I don't really understand how gives you access to the usual convolutional approach. Okay, so what if we did what if we took um, what if we took non-image let's let's say we took um, we wanted to build an apples versus oranges classifier. Okay, I need one and, of those. And we wanted to do this. Um, in a variety of ways, but we have some intuition that using spatial relationships is going to improve our accuracy. So if we have three dimensions in our input feature vector, so let's say like color, uh, texture, uh, squishiness. Okay. You can't use, th th that, that feature vector does not exist on a two-dimensional plane necessarily because it has three dimensions. So we could play tricks about dimension. We could play tricks on the input vector to collapse that information into two-dimensional space, yep. assuming that's something we wanted to do. Yep. One of those tricks would be um, we take the color attribute and we leave it alone. And then we take the squishiness attribute and the um, texture attribute and we multiply them. So we're left with two features, boop, two-dimensional space. Mm -hmm. So that's one type of feature. Yeah, yeah, no, okay, no, I, I, okay, so, but I, don't, I guess I don't, the bit I don't understand is how when you've got that lower dimension representation, how that helps you with the application of convolution to this problem, see what I'm saying? Okay, so we're talking about 2D convolution in this case because we already have all these open source libraries that do 2D convolutional neural networks very well. That's the only motivation. Yeah, okay. But but it seems like you're still stuck in this weird um, non-regular grid kind of universe, right? Right. So if we take information from the network, from the graph, and we perform some sort of transformation, we can embed all of the information into as whatever number of dimensions we want. Now we lose some information by doing that, and we potentially corrupt relationships between features by doing that. So we could, if we, if we have uh, this sort of weird, um, contorted information space 
by collapsing it into a you know lower x dimensional space we do lose information or, or we at least stand to lose information yeah um but if we do that again we can use our standard tools to analyze the space okay i don't know if maybe miss um yeah i just feel like you you the thing that you end up with after the embedding still looks it doesn't look like an image well if you collapse it to two-dimensional space it will look like a something in 2d oh i see you're just going to treat that as a bunch of pixels essentially sure oh, okay so but then you lose the edges don't you i guess they don't have edges in that embedding so if you think about an adjacency matrix you know what? Well, so an adjacency yeah. matrix is the yeah is the is the uh, relationship is the is the is the link relationship between nodes. Mm -hmm. That is something like a, an uh, image. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So that's the thing that you've reduced to two dimensions. Mm, that exists in two dimensions already, if you wanted to, because you can yeah, just right. organize your nodes in transpose order. Yeah. Yeah. The thing that. So why not just okay? <laughs> yeah, so the answer is um, when you when you look at this adjacency matrix in its natural in its raw form, you you are left with a system which is not classifiable by standard CNNs no. because the the it's not organized right. It, that's there's, right. there's no meaning to the spatial arrangement. That's right. Right. So, so the, the embedding has meaning. Yes, in some it's like it's like doing some strange uh, transformation, like a PCA, like a principal compound analysis. Sure. Uh, so we you don't really treat, know what the dimensions are. So you sort of just treat that as a sparse matrix, basically. Yeah. That, okay. So it's just full of zeros and ones. Mm -hmm. Well, like, it doesn't have to be ones. If it's a weighted graph or there's no edge properties or something, the each one of okay. the pixels has weight. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Interesting. So that's node embedding. So that's the light duty version. The heavy duty okay. version is actually building convolutional kernels which operate on generalized spaces. I see. Non-Euclidean spaces. So that is the GCN mentioned in the notes. Okay, so that's generalized convolutional graph. Graph convolutional network. Graph convolutional network. Okay. All right, so if you think about just uh, man, I'm, this was supposed to be a quick explanation. So we'll do we'll do <laughs> five, five minutes more. Uh, so um, if you think about the standard one-dimensional convolutional operator, it's a pretty simple thing. You basically take two functions or pieces of information and you slide them past each other, right? Yeah. Slide as you go along. You're supposed to reverse one first, but. Sure. Seems like people don't usually do that. Well, that would be called correlation if you didn't do right. that. Okay, so um, that's a standard 1D Euclidean convolutional operator. But what if, so again, if your sort of x-axis or whatever, your time axis or your progression axis in your signal is nonlinear with respect to Euclidean space, you can't perform that same analysis. So you right. have to design the kernel, the, the filter operation, to operate on that sort of nonlinear space. Hmm. So that's what we're talking about doing. I mean, that's that's what people are doing in, in the GCN world. Right. Um, and it's yeah. awesome. So anyway, the other note in there is GAE, which is graph auto encoder. Um, so I'm using graph convolutional networks to do subgraph and node classification and prediction. Um, and I'm using GAEs, graph autoencoders, to do link or edge or whatever prediction in those information spaces. I see. Fascinating. I think so. Cool. Um, so there you go. There's your not-so-brief introduction to GCNs. Yeah. Next bullet well, point. Um... Hmm, that's got me thinking. Um, very cool. Well, please come to the uh, the hackathon at AAPG in May to think and talk about and maybe do some of that stuff on stratigraphy. Okay, deal. We'll find we'll find a data set, an appropriate data set. 
Hey, let's uh, let's tack here and talk about the amazing NVIDIA V100. Oh yeah, you got your little mitts on one of those, have you? <laughs> Did you have you used one yet? No. They're everything they're supposed to be. <laughs> okay. They're amazing. Um, they I just have uh, AWS instance running or whatever. Um, and oh my god, it's it is insane. If you use so they have this. I don't understand anything about computers, but they they have this TPU architecture. Tensor yeah. processing unit, and they so they claim that these V100s can get up to 125 teraflops. So I so you have to use like half precision numbers to to do these operations, but it is crazy. I mean, they absolutely they absolutely tear through training. It's wonderful. Oh really? Wow, that's cool. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so that's Nvidia's. It's like a software defined thing, isn't it? These TPUs, they're sort of no idea. I don't think they call them TPUs, do they? I thought that was a Google thing. I think they do. Because um, certainly they seem to have these... I, I don't know. When I read about it, I was like, oh, this sounds more like a Me Too thing from NVIDIA while they, gen while they actually build some hardware technology around it. Because Google's TPU is an actual... You know, it's a chip, um, which actually Tensor they just announced. Yeah, the call. Whatever. yeah okay. Um, Google just announced the 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 TPU V2 will be going to the cloud, like as soon as it's released, I think. And that's interesting because it the current TPUs don't do training; they only do inference. Are, um, training and inf inference, and they'll be available on Google Cloud at some point. So I'm, I was looking forward to having a play with those. But yeah, I should give these uh, or get Diego to give these V100 to try too. We're not actually doing any uh, deep learning right now. We're sort of in a bit of a hiatus, doing some other stuff. But um, when we get back to it, maybe we'll give it a go. Yeah, I was, I was reading about that. The, the concept of the TPU is it has to be good at slightly different things from a from a GPU, I guess, from what we normally might use. Um, and the two things were, one of them is obvious, really, which is matrix multiplication. So it has to be good at this particular type of operation. But the other thing I hadn't really thought about, but I like the sound of it, and I haven't given it a huge amount of thought or anything, but um, this was... Uh, uh, Jeff Dean talking about this. So, I mean, the guy knows what he's talking about. He built most of Google's infrastructure, I think. Um, and the way he expressed it was just that, like, look, we don't need all this precision. Like, when we're yeah. doing deep learning, when we're learning these weights, actually, we don't need, you know, 64-bit floats. We can get away with much, much less precision. And um, I'd never really thought about that before, but I love that concept. I'd love to see more of that kind of thinking come to seismic processing. You know, like how can we make this faster by actually only caring about a, sm a smaller set of things? Um, yeah. So I like that trend. Indeed, it's elegant, elegant solution. Yeah. And then the other one, which I, I also know nothing about, we should find someone to come on the show and explain it to us is the uh, FPGA stuff and the sort of, oh, yeah. you know, programmable hardware, essentially, where people are actually kind of building the network into the chip so that it's actually a physical neural net, <laughs> essentially. My, oh, of, my goodness. My naive understanding of it. You know who we should get on the show to talk to us about this? My dad. <laughs> yeah? Yeah, he's, uh, he's a really? software... He, I mean, he's an embedded systems expert. He... Uh, he uh, has been dealing with FPGA since they were conceived of. Oh, right. Yeah, let's do it. That sounds awesome. How did you come up with him? <laughs> That's right. Um, I bet you're seeing him this uh, this holiday season, aren't you? Uh, no, because he's going to be in Virginia, uh, and I'm going to be in New Orleans. Oh. Well, oh. let's track him down. Yeah, I'm sure we can find him somewhere. I bet you've got his number. 
Hey, so I wanted to mention a, a thing that I, I would like people to start touching on at the Geo hackathons. So okay, cool. the, the thing that I'm doing right now with this GCN that we just talked about is uh, a two-part talk. And the second part of the talk is to discuss the relationship of bias in humans to bias in models. Hmm. <laughs> so we're trying to quantify that. And it would be really interesting to see you and I have talked extensively on the show about uncertainty in subsurface experiments. Um, it would be interesting to see if we can try to quantify some of the uncertainty in the modern machine learning methodologies um, in geoscience. My particular topic is based on a loan cre credit worthiness um, prediction. Uh, and it is an analysis, quantitative analysis of how biased machine learning models are, one particular machine learning model is, against women being approved just, you know, disproportionately fewer times than men mm -hmm. for small business loans. Hmm. Um, so keep that on your radar. And as we get closer to this next hackathon, it would be really neat to challenge some people to discuss uncertainty because I think even though uncertainty is such a sort of elusive beast in, in the geoscience world, it is conceivable that by using these discrete pieces of analysis, like these machine learning pieces of analysis, we can start to get a handle on individual mm -hmm. uncertainties in the full workflow. Yeah. Well, yeah, sure. I, I mean, I feel like a big, piece of it is this sort of cultural hang-up and inability of other pieces of the workflow to deal. I mean, we've had access to pretty good quantitative estimates of uncertainty since we started doing stochastic simulation, and it's still not standard to pay much attention to those distributions and what they're telling us about the predictability of a system. So, I mean, I... I do you know what I mean? Like, I feel like, yeah, we machine learning and neural networks and things give us another way to express those distributions, and maybe they're more reliable. I don't know, um, but nobody cares. <laughs> I mean, okay, so maybe maybe problem. my point is that we have these whippersnappers using these new methodologies, and hopefully, we can convince them. Yeah. To look at uncertainty distributions. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what it takes. I've I've speculated before, probably on this show, whether the the problem is that when you get tool bottlenecks in tools, and that bottleneck might be technology like oh, the finance person uses a spreadsheet and they only have one box for that number, but the it might be quite an a sort of irrelevant seeming bottleneck like the main way of communicating with the rest of the team is through email. And so it tends to be things written in sentences. And do you know what I mean? Like there's just a horrible data transaction happening that causes most of the richness of your data to disappear. So um, dimensionality reduction. Yeah, basically the dimensionality reduction of email. Yeah. I think it's, it's fascinating how resistant we've been um, to quantitative treatments of uncertainty. Well, at least in yeah. industrial practice, I mean, there's a... Fair enough. No, I, I would say in academic literature as well. No, 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 sorry, my point. Yeah. So in industrial practice, maybe analysis of those uncertainties is actively ignored. Oh, oh yeah, okay, yeah, sure. Well, <laughs> yeah, but w w weirdly, you'd think there, if anywhere, there was a vested interest in getting a better handle on it, and yet, there isn't, like, even if we don't use it for prediction in the kind of forward sense, we don't use it in the, there's no, um, there's no backpropagation. Correcting inspiration. Yeah. <laughs> it's completely missing from our workflow. And um, at least, I mean, I, I've always sort of assumed that, 
well, Exxon must do stuff like that. Shell must do stuff like that. But I don't know. There's not a huge amount of evidence for that. But there, this is the holiday episode. Oh yeah, and we haven't talked about <laughs> oh, no, Christmas, <laughs> our holiday <laughs> gift lists yet. Uh, so we need to do that. And in the show notes, you need to remind me uh, to point out to our listeners. Skip ahead to minute X Y Z to get to the. <laughs> Good stuff. Um, Get to the good stuff. Yeah. Skip ahead of this nonsense. So you, you released your Christmas wish list a while ago. Yeah. yeah. What was on yeah, it? Was, you go first. I wrote, and I'm embarrassed to say that was two weeks ago. I I got into, maybe we'll get a chance to talk about it. Probably won't, but I, I got twisted off on the old... The old chestnut of rainbow color maps and haven't been able to finish that blog post <laughs> basically ever since. Um, <laughs> it just won't go away. That whole, like, it's like a meme. <laughs> it, just won't, it won't die because every time it comes up, some really smart, considerate people go, actually, I quite like the rainbow color map. And it's like, ah. Anyway, um, yeah, so gifts, I did, so the gift list is up. No one has commented on my awesome title, the punniest title oh, I've ever was, written. Yeah. And there was another pun related For to a, that inside the post, right? There was, yeah. yeah. And no, no, I didn't, I mean, I don't know one noticed the it. The, post? The, the post of Christmas present. <laughs> it's just, it's so good, it hurts. And <laughs> I haven't had a single <laughs> remark. Well, has anyone, it up. looks like some people have, no, no one even remarked on the gift list. This, yeah. Some of these are reused, man. This is the problem. You got to come up with new stuff every year to entertain the readers. No. Not yeah. More. Yeah. The uh, the keychain uh, pull apart geologic model thingy. Did I do that before? Yeah. Oh, I'm so lame. <laughs> On right. <laughs> um, I thought there was another one in there too, but no. Okay. Well. Where, anyway, did I re where did I use that? Are you, you, we, it came up somewhere. I go back to your last yeah, year. Yeah, no, no. It's it would be from earlier in the year because um, John Lehman was the uh, expert advisor on that. Oh, I, so I apologize. I thought this was on your last year's Christmas list. I I resemble that remark. Um, I, I'm not saying it couldn't happen, but basically I start collecting gifts for the year as soon. In fact, my list for next year has already got three things on it because there's stuff that I missed for this year. <laughs> so, I mean, it is old, you know, up to a year. Old. Um, Can we talk about your Christmas list already? What's on it? Our listeners our listen want to know. There's some cool stuff on it. There's a Lego seismometer. Um, the new Raspberry Shake seismometers um, are out, or yeah, I think, or coming out. Anyway, the Raspberry Shakes are awesome. Um, as you know, I really like globes. Um, I, so I linked to a really nice moon globe. The There's also, um, and I got some of these myself, an outfit called the Little Planet Factory that 3D print very beautiful little planets um, at all sorts of different scales. They're really cool. They actually have stopped selling them, but their models are on Shapeways, uh, shapeways.com. So you can actually just order their models directly from Shapeways. What's the largest one you can get? Planet one to uh, one scale? I, I think so, yeah. Maybe they do a one-to-one -one of a little meteorite. Um, <laughs> there's the, the, my favorite thing, um, and Steve uh, Purvis tweeted this out as well, um, was the... It's a, a life-size actual model of Earth. It's eight millimeters in diameter. Um, and I'm just looking at the name of this particular type of model because it's not coming to me. But it's the size that Earth would have to be if Earth was a black hole. Okay? Oh, yeah. Makes sense. It's called the Schwarzschild radius. Yes, I remember. So, so you can buy this Schwarzschild radius Earth. It's, I think, eight... 0.869 millimeters in diameter. It's and much larger than I would have thought, actually. Have that on your desk. It's pretty. Uh, it's pretty cool. Um, what else is on my list? I mean, it's just it's all good stuff. Some really great books. 
Um, I tried to put some new books on there that came out kind of after November, um, all the latest Earth science books, including ours, of course. A um, couple of them look really great, actually. Uh, Reading the Rocks, it's about Victorian geologists. I love um, the puzzle, the jigsaw uh, puzzle. That puzzle's amazing, yeah. It's like an algorithmically generated puzzle that looks like agate. Not only is the agate pattern algorithmically generated and semi-random, but the puzzle piece shapes themselves are algorithmically generated by a separate algorithm. So it's very geeky indeed. And if you're into jigsaw um, puzzles, this looks like probably one of the hardest. It, it does look really hard. And the piece shapes are pretty wild. Like they are not your regular... They almost look like sort of acicular crystals. Um, they're pretty neat. And then if you want your house to look like a kind of Bond villain lair, um, <laughs> you can get these crazy massive, uh, well, it's wallpaper basically that looks like kind of mineral thin sections and a transmitted light, uh, sorry, reflected light. And um, some of them, you know, this is big botryoidal uh, habits and things on your walls. Um, they look kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah. You know, did you, you said you were going to do one too. Have you done that? Yeah, I did a mini list. It's in the show notes. I, okay. so Matt does his geoscience Christmas gift list every year. So I said, well, let me try to do a data science gift list this year. Um, so there's a couple things. One I stole from Matt, which is the Amazon deep lens, mm. which is pretty cool. It hasn't come out yet, but it's going to. And uh, you can check that out. There's a link on the uh, on the notes. Um, so gift cards, I picked a couple things which are actually useful to people in the data science community. One is doing the online courses if you're sort of an intro uh, to data science or intro to machine learning person. There's um, Udemy, there's Khan Academy, there's Coursera. Um, so if you want to do one of those courses and of course receive credit for it, you have to pay. So you could get your friends and family Udemy courses gift cards. Um, the biggest one, the one that I always want, is Amazon Web Services gift cards. <laughs> because I, you can actually, so just regular Amazon gift cards, you can pay your AWS bill with those cards, <laughs> which is pretty cool. So guess what I will be doing with all my Amazon gift cards that I don't receive this Christmas. Um, the external GPU thing. I don't have a link on here for this, but this is such a cool idea. So you were experimenting with this this year, and it's worked out really well for you, right? Yeah, yeah, I'm very happy. So um, I, I, I couldn't find a link with a complete build list, buy list, press this button to check out site. Have you ever seen hmm. something like that? Um, well, for the kind of, I mean, I just get these kind of fully engineered aftermarket plug and play things. Are you talking about like building one yourself? Both things. Yeah. I mean the the big ones the the big one for Mac users is the Bison box. Um and the more generic one is the Akitio node or the Akitio node three, I guess, is the USB three. Um and basically yeah you buy the box which has the power unit and the interface and you buy a GPU kind of off the shelf as it were and it'll fit pretty much any GPU I think these things they're, they're pretty decent sized boxes um, what just, I wanted yeah. I, I was trying to f just find a thing that was like one page with the the housing the power supply da -da 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 -da, and the card and everything all together that you could right. just buy all at once. Couldn't find it. Yeah, Bison boxes will be the Bison box will be the cheap, the um, not cheapest actually, probably the most expensive, but the most self-contained package. Yeah. Um, but I'm, I and it's not so much that you couldn't use the Bison box with another with a non-Mac. I think it's just that they only ship like the little software package you know that they um, interface with for the Mac so in other words if you were putting it on Linux box you'd be kind of on your own with getting it to recognize the graphics card and all that kind of stuff so this is related to my next bullet point here on the data science gift list uh, which includes 
hardware hacking peripherals and stuff. So um, many of us in the nerdist community like to build our own little gizmos. Um, so maybe you already have a computer that can receive a nice GPU. Buy someone a GPU. But also this includes um, the Raspberry Pi extensions. So it's cool to have a Raspberry Pi, but it's also really cool to have like a little thing you can fiddle with. So there's all these little um, kits where you can build little Raspberry Pi laptops and computers. Some of them are pretty well oriented towards kids too, so, which I think is awesome. So there's one I, I have a link on here called Kano Kits or Kano Kits. I don't know how to pronounce it. Um, and it is uh, sort of like learn to build a computer and learn to code all using this thing. It's awesome. Um, cool. And the last two are actually productivity tools for the, the data science or, or any sort of uh, techie workspace. One is Bluetooth headphones. Man, I'm not wearing them right now, and I wish I was, because I'm tethered to my computer, and I can only move my head so far away. <laughs> but I have Bluetooth headphones. I, I've worn them for a couple years now, and they are seriously life-changing, especially if you wear headphones a lot while you're working. All right. um, See, there's I've, a list of the best. I've had a Please. couple of... Um... Bluetooth speakers, but it's like not recently, and they were just so annoying for you know just for what? dropping the signal or not connecting properly and all this kind of stuff. I was just like, this is a waste of time. But you're saying these are pretty good; they're, they're I have, reliable. These are, I wear these at least every day. These are okay. I don't know Bose something. They're Amazing. These are earbuds. But then at my office, I actually have a pair of like noise canceling over ear headphones, and they are awesome. Get them for your for your friends and family. And then the last thing on the list, which is kind of cheesy, but is serious. So, <laughs> Xperia has whiteboards all over the place, and man, I just I forgot about how much I love to stand at a board and like think it out and brainstorm yeah, yeah. with other people. It's a big, it's a big deal, and I hadn't had that for for many years. Um, like between the time I finished school and the and the time I had to pay for all the all this junk in my office, yeah. <laughs> and never never bought any whiteboards. I should have. So get yourself some whiteboards. There's a, just a link on the list to the Amazon thing, and they have them. I mean, you can get standalones. You can get hang on your walls. You can get like roll them out in sheets, paint them on every anything you can think of. Yeah, whiteboard paint. Mm -hmm. um, if you, I, so I haven't actually bought any yet, but I've done a bit of research around it. And the thing I learned was don't skimp because <laughs> it's yeah. it's worth getting decent whiteboard paint. Apparently, some of the other stuff just like it stains. You know, you never quite rub off the um, the ink, or it's it's a bit rough or whatever. So anyway, well, I really want some for our co-working space, but the good stuff is not cheap. How much um, are we talking? It's like a few hundred bucks kind of thing For to what? do a wall. To do oh, a wall. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah. Not like a gallon. Um, yeah, it's not like a tin of paint, that's for sure. I guess you're um, there. I just added something to your list. Um, the Movidius Neural Compute Stick. Yes. So this is uh, one of um, Intel's projects, and it's, it's a pretty cute little USB stick. It's made out of aluminium, so it feels kind of nice. And um, basically, you can sort of compile models from platforms like TensorFlow and upload them to it, and then it'll do inference only. So, um, you know, it's, it's a way to make a portable model um, that will do pretty fast inference once it's... Cool. Once it's set up, yeah, and they're seventy nine dollars, so it's not particularly expensive. But if you're looking at plugging a a network uh, trained model into something like a Raspberry Pi, or you want to give it to someone else, or um, you know, a cool thing to give to clients, maybe, uh, then it's kind of a neat little gimmick. It's sort of a, a developer toolkit thing, but I've, I've been um, I've got some for a future. Hackathon prize. Cool. You can expect to see those pop up in Salt Lake City. If you want one, come and be awesome at the hackathon. <laughs> awesome. I'll, I'll give you one. Well, 
that's it for us. That's all the time we have. Oh, I was just getting into that as well. <laughs> I'm kidding. Oh man, I'm so sleepy. Wrap it up here on this show. Well, um, we'll see the our audience when. Uh, it's going to be a while. Could be a couple of weeks. Could be a couple of weeks. So hang in there. We'll still <laughs> we'll still be here, and we look forward to seeing you then on Under Sampled Radio. Bye. Bye everyone.